is Our American Stories, and this next story comes from Lily Danzinger. And this piece was originally written in Psychology Today for her mother and father. I was eight the first time my father and I spoke about heroin. He was working on a sculpture, sitting cross-legged on the floor with his curly hair hanging down over his face. I stood at his bookshelf, perusing the thick art volumes. Tucked between the pages of one, I found a piece of tinfoil folded into a square and marked with small circular burns. I'd never seen one like it, but I had a hunch this peculiar object had something to do with his drug habit. I asked, Papa, what's this? He frowned in the same way he would when I declined to try out a new drawing technique, but I knew I wasn't the source of his disappointment this time. Some ten seconds ticked by before he finally answered, That's from doing drugs. But it's from a long time ago. It must have gotten lost in that book. There was another pause, and guilt must have overcome him, because he then confessed that the tinfoil square wasn't actually from that long ago, though he assured me that he had stopped using drugs again and was doing better this time. Smelling of tobacco and plaster, he planted a kiss on the top of my head and went back to chiseling a block of wood. I knew from a young age that my parents were heroin addicts. It doesn't take the world's smartest kid to figure out the purpose of a methadone clinic, or to decipher loud, tearful arguments about how it's time to stop, muffled by only a thin wall when you're supposed to be asleep. Growing up where and when I did, in New York's East Village and San Francisco's Mission District in the early 90s, their predicament was common. Plenty of people were slowly caving in on themselves, their skin growing sallow and their eyes becoming vacant as they were eaten alive from within by drugs. But despite knowing that my parents struggled with addiction, I had only a patchy understanding of what that meant. Either for them or for the hollow-eyed strangers on the street and in the clinic waiting room. I'd picked up enough from movies and foreboding commercials to know that drugs were bad for you, but I understood it in the same abstract way I knew broccoli was good for you. I couldn't really differentiate between my parents' drug problem and all their other grown-up problems, like making the rent and keeping the house clean. In the years after the tinfoil incident, after my parents split up and my mother successfully kicked her heroin habit, my father and I had an ongoing coded dialogue about his efforts to do the same. He would tell me that he was healthy, which was his way of saying that he was clean. He couldn't bring himself to be completely frank about his struggle, but he knew that I worried about it and he wanted to reassure me. The fact that he told me how he was doing, no matter how euphemistically, made me trust him. It made me feel even more invested as I rooted for him from the sidelines of this invisible battle. I believed in him so intensely that I was probably the only person who didn't immediately assume drugs were involved when he died. I was 12 and living in upstate New York with my mother. He had gone to live in a cabin in the Northern California Redwoods to be in nature and away from drugs. He died in his sleep. Even though I was across the country when it happened, I felt certain that my father was clean because of the postcards he'd sent me, always mentioning how well he was doing and how he couldn't wait for me to visit so we could camp out under the ancient majestic trees. The autopsy report eventually confirmed that there was no heroin in my father's blood when he died. The coroner couldn't determine a cause of death, which left many open questions, but I had the answer to the one question that mattered to me. 
As far as I knew, the only way heroin could become fatal was through an overdose, and I took the absence of the drug in his system to mean that his death was unrelated to his many years of drug abuse. I felt vindicated. I spent the next decade mourning my father, telling everyone what a great artist he'd been and how much he'd taught me about life, literature, and language. That trendy was a bad word, for instance, and overusing like makes a person sound ignorant. My father was the beloved lost, blameless as a saint. While I sprayed the anger I felt over his loss everywhere else, blasting it like buckshot from a shotgun at my mother, teachers and classmates, and later at truant officers and cops. I was furious at the world for taking him from me. When I hit my 20s, I realized that I didn't actually know that much about my father beyond my rosy memories, so I started reaching out to his old friends. The hazy view of heroin I'd had as a child became sharper and more detailed. I learned that he'd been using it with far more regularity and for a longer period of time than I'd ever known. I eventually came to face the obvious. The damage done by poisoning yourself for almost two decades doesn't instantly reverse the moment you stop. A 43-year-old man's organs don't just shut down inexplicably. There may not have been heroin in his system when he died, but that didn't mean heroin wasn't the cause of his death. I started to see his death not as some freak occurrence, but as something he let happen. And I was furious. Letting myself rage at him, at the memory of him, was like releasing a breath I'd held for almost 20 years. As a child, I'd thought of addiction as a big bad demon my parents were fighting to escape so that we could all live happily ever after. Now, I had to wonder how they let themselves get into that position in the first place. How could they have looked at the peaceful face of their sleeping child in one room, then closed the door and gotten high in another? My father was a good parent in many ways. He read me Grimm's fairy tales and Greek myths, cherished my every piece of art, and encouraged me to voice my thoughts loudly and clearly. But all the while, he failed his number one duty to me to do everything he could to make sure that he'd stay in my life. The central requirement of being a parent is to be present. All the rest is a matter of style and degree. You can't be a good parent or even a bad parent if you're not there at all. He hadn't really died by accident, I came to realize. He'd committed a suicide by neglect, like a lie of omission. In a way, feeling my anger at him has lessened its power over me. The story we often hear about the loved ones of addicts, a pat tale of anger resolving into forgiveness, doesn't acknowledge the complexity of feelings layered upon each other, all of them shifting continually with time. I don't know if or when I'll ever fully forgive my father, but that's okay. Anger hasn't diminished my love for him or my appreciation of everything that was wonderful about him. It's just made him feel more real. It's let me see him with bracing clarity. Not only as the adored father I lost too soon, but as a flawed human being who I can now mourn more fully and honestly. And what a beautiful and thoughtful piece. Thank you, Lily, for what you wrote, and thank you for sharing it with us. Lily Danziger's story, her mother and father's story, here on Our American Stories.
the Abbott and Costello program, starring Bud Abbott and Lou Costello. Brought to you by Camel, the cigarette of costlier, properly aged tobacco. This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. He was one of the best ever at his job in the entertainment world, a job, a role you don't see much anymore. Bud Abbott was a straight man, the straight man of the comedy duo Abbott and Costello. In a comedy duo, the straight man's role seems simple. Set up the funny man for the laughs, or the funny woman. But it is harder than it appears, and requires great skill, even greater timing, and tremendous discipline and selflessness. There was a time in American comedy history when straight men ruled the comedy landscape. Dean Martin of Martin and Lewis, Dan Rowan of Rowan and Martin, George Burns of Burns and Allen, and Desi Arnaz, the husband of Lucille Ball and the consummate straight man. No one was better at this job than Bud Abbott, who died on this day in history in 1974. And as always, our This Day in Histories are brought to us by the great folks at Hillsdale College. And if you can't get to Hillsdale, Hillsdale can always come to you with their terrific and free online courses. Go to hillsdale.edu to find them that's hillsdale.edu. Bud Abbott was born on October 2nd, 1895 in a beach and entertainment town an hour south of New York City, Asbury Park, New Jersey, known for producing one of America's biggest rock stars, Bruce Springsteen. Show business was in Abbott's blood. His father was an advance man for traveling acts. His mom performed as a bareback horse rider for the Ringling Brothers Circus. School could not compete for the attention of the young Abbott, who dropped out in 1909 to work with his father at Coney Island, another beachfront entertainment town, this one in Brooklyn, New York. Abbott kicked around in the entertainment world for nearly two decades, moved around a lot, and started to toy with the role of straight man on the stage with his wife Betty and with other burlesque acts. Then came Abbott's life-changing moment. He was working at the Casino Theater in Brooklyn in 1936 when the comedy duo Lyons and Costello were scheduled to perform. Lyons, the straight man, was sick that night and couldn't make the gig. Costello heard that the man working the cashier had experience performing as a straight man and he asked him to sub for his partner. That man was Bud Abbott and the rest, well, it was history. The improvised set was a huge hit with the audience, earning big laughs from a very tough crowd. And the comedy act known as Abbott and Costello, it was born that night. They gained national attention quickly in 1938 when they became regulars on the hit radio show, The Kate Smith Hour. One of their earliest radio performances turned out to be one of their very best, one that would become a signature bit and an American classic. It was the Who's On First routine, a routine they wrote with comedy writer John Grant. The routine was based on a simple premise, a miscommunication over a baseball lineup. The routine uses repetition and slowly escalating frustration to tremendous effect, the two performers playing perfectly to each other's strengths. Costello, the bombastic and emotive character, and Abbott, the oblivious and unflappable one. You're going to be the manager of the retired actors' baseball team? Yes. I would like to join the retired actors' baseball team. Oh, you would? And I would like to know some of the guys' names on the team, so if I want to play with them, I'll know them, and I'd meet them on the street or in the home here, I can say hello to them. 
Oh, sure. But you know they give baseball players nowadays very peculiar names. You know, a lot of funny names. You know, like uh, Sticky Fields. Sticky Fields. Uh, Goofy Dan. Booby Barber. Booby Barber. I know all of them. But let's see now. We have on our team, we have who's on first, what's on second, I don't know who's on third. That's what I want to find then, out, the guy's name. And then, uh-huh. That's what I want to find out, the guy's name. I'm telling you, who's on first, what's on second, I don't know who's on third. Now, Abby, you now, want to be the manager of the baseball team? Yes. You know the guy's names? Well, I should. Well, now you tell me the guy's names on the baseball I team. I say, who's on first, what's on second, I don't know who's on third. You ain't saying nothing to me yet. Go ahead and tell me. <laughs> I'm telling him. You said nothing yet. Go ahead and tell me. Who's on first? What's on second? I don't know. Is on third. You know the guy's name's on the baseball team? Well, go ahead. Who's on first? Yes. I mean the guy's name. Who? The guy playing first. Who? The guy playing first base. Who? The guy on first base. Who is on first? What are you asking me for? I don't know. Now, wait a minute. I'm I'm asking you who's on first. That's his name. Well, go ahead and tell me. Who? The guy on first. That's it. That's his name. Well, you ain't said nothing. I ain't asked you nothing. You did. You know the guy's name on first base? Go ahead and tell me the guy's name on first base. Who? The guy playing first base. Who is on first, Lou? What are you asking me for? Now, don't get excited. I'm saying who. I'm asking you a simple question. Who's on first? Yes. Well, go ahead and tell me. That's it. That's who? <laughs> I'm asking you, what's the guy's name on first oh, base? Oh, no. What's on second? I'm not asking you who's on second. Who's on first? One base at a time. And it became one of their signature pieces. By 1944, they had the bit copyrighted to protect against copycats and imitators. In 1939, they appeared on Broadway in the streets of Paris and soon after signed a film contract with Universal Studios. Their second movie, Buck Privates, released in 1941 at the dawn of a big world war, was a huge hit, grossing more than $10 million, the highest grossing film Universal had had to date. The duo became gigantic film stars during World War II, making light comedies to provide relief to a nation at war, a nation in need, desperate need, of some laughs. Their 1945 film, The Naughty 90s, introduced the Who's On First sketch to the entire world. Abbott and Costello's popularity began to wane after the war. Low-budget efforts such as Abbott and Costello Meet Frankenstein and Abbott and Costello Go to Mars didn't help matters. Today, the United States planned to claim a whole planet through the most extraordinary expedition of our time, A flight through space by rocket ship. I hereby claim Mars in the name of the United States of America. Yes, Bud Abbott and Lou Costello go to Mars in the funniest movie on Earth. You'll howl when their misguided missile lands them on the manless planet Venus amid acres and acres of gorgeous man-hungry girls. The duo made their last movie together, Dance With Me, Henry, in 1956. Lou Costello died three years later on March 3, 1959. But Abbott, well, he attempted a comeback in 1961, but to no avail. Quote, Nobody could ever live up to Lou, he told people wherever he met them. It was true. From the great heights of show business, Abbott had descended to great depths. Work was scarce, but Abbott was able to generate some income, providing voiceover work for the Hanna-Barbera animated series, The Abbott and Costello Cartoon Show. But it wasn't enough. In 1970, Bud Abbott suffered the first in a series of strokes and was soon living off his monthly Social Security check, supported by his two children. Victoria Wheeler, his daughter, was interviewed by National Enquirer and told them this, quote, The doctors don't hold any hope for him. He has cancer. My father is a very sick man. He's in a lot of pain and hallucinates a great deal. 
Doctors say he has three months, maybe six to live, but only God can tell. His condition changes from day to day. Sometimes he seems okay, and in the next moment, he's incoherent and oblivious to those around him. Well, after that article ran, Abbott and his family were swamped with letters and cards of support from across the world. Many included money. In September of 1973, the magazine ran a follow-up story with Bud's wife of 55 years, Betty, doing the talking. Here's what she said. We couldn't possibly answer all the letters, but I want to thank everybody. And please, tell everybody Bud isn't alone. We've been together for 55 years. I say my prayers for my husband every night, but I want to keep him with me for as long as I can. Abbott died on this day in history in 1974 at the age of 77. He was surrounded by loved ones and by his family. How good was Bud Abbott? His partner, Lou Costello, knew how good he was. Costello insisted on splitting their earnings 60-40 in Abbott's favor. Quote, Comics are a dime a dozen, he explained. Good straight men, they're really hard to find. Groucho Marx agreed. He was the greatest straight man ever, Groucho told reporters shortly after Abbott's death. As for the Who's on First routine, it was memorialized at the Baseball Hall of Fame in Cooperstown, New York. Abbott and Costello are among the very few honorees from outside the game. In 1999, Time Magazine named the routine Best Comedy Sketch of the 20th Century. An early recording was placed in the Library of Congress National Recording Registry in 2003. Abbott and Costello each have three stars on the Hollywood Walk of Fame for their work in radio, television, and motion pictures. But perhaps the greatest honor of all for Bud Abbott came in 2009. This Jersey kid from Asbury Park with dreams of show business success was inducted into the New Jersey Hall of Fame. The life of Bud Abbott, who died on this day in history in 1974. His story, here on Our American Stories. Who's on first, what's on second, I don't know, is on third. You know the guy's name's on the baseball team? Yes. Well, go ahead. Who's on first? Yes. I mean the guy's name. Who? The guy playing first. Who? The guy playing first base. Who? The guy on first base. <laughs> Who is on first? Why are you asking me for? I don't know. <laughs> This is Our American Stories, where we bring you stories about everything in life, and where we love to bring you stories from medical professionals who are on the front lines of keeping us all healthy, and who are with us in what are often the most trying moments of our lives. And today we bring you just such a story that we found on the terrific website LifeZet.com. I happen to write for them, too. It was written by a critical care physician named Jeremy Topin. And he graciously recorded it for us. Let's take a listen to Jeremy's story. The patient in front of me is trying to die. Elderly and frail, he's lying in the bed. His ribs outlined under skin that should be smooth. His temples are concave, where they should be flat both in outward 
display of internal damage from his lung cancer. More striking than his cachexia are the strained muscles in his neck and his pursed lip breathing. He is working hard for each breath drowning in the air around him from his cancer or pneumonia or more likely both. It's my first night on call as a senior resident in the ICU. It is early in my second year of residency at the University of Chicago where I'm splitting my time between internal medicine and pediatrics. The intensive care unit is outside my comfort zone with its rapid pace and large volume of data to process and the complexities of multiple failing organ systems to manage. I'm both intimidated and inspired by those who seem to recognize patterns, synthesize information, and anticipate problems with ease. I want to be like them. I want to face my fears head on. I've chosen to be here to prove to myself that I can do this, that I'm capable of caring for the sickest of the sick. And now in the middle of the night, without a supporting daytime cast of residents and attendings, I'm anxious for my first test, and it happens to be the man in front of me, struggling to breathe. I want to be here. I want to be a critical care physician. I know what to do. A, B, C, airway, breathing, circulation. He has A in airway. He needs B, help with his breathing. His C, circulation, is fine. And his blood pressure, for the moment, is good. The team, two interns and me, prepare to intubate, placing a tube into his lungs to help him breathe. I've been reading for months about managing patients on a ventilator, the perils, the pitfalls. I review chapters and books written by my attendings who I will report to in the morning. I'm ready. Anesthesia comes and places the tube. I run fluids to prevent low blood pressure. I start medicine to sedate and calm my patient. I call out ventilator settings to help breathe for and give oxygen to my patient. It all goes wrong. His blood pressure drops dangerously low. He's thrashing around in the bed, working even harder than before. Alarms on the ventilator are beeping. His oxygen levels are now critically low. He needs more sedation to calm him, but that will make his already low blood pressure worse. He needs medicine to help support his failing circulation, but it requires a special IV, a central line in his neck or groin. I have placed a few, but not in critical situations, much less in a patient thrashing about all over the bed. I tried different settings on the ventilator. Settings for pneumonia with high oxygen and more pressure. Settings for COPD with quicker but smaller breaths. All to no avail. He is not following the books I have read nor any pattern I recognize. He's gone from bad to worse and now is close to death. I breathe. All eyes are on me. The nurses, the respiratory therapists, the interns are all looking to me, the senior resident, to take charge and help this patient. But the puzzle of my patient's physiology is beyond my recognition. I don't want to be here. I don't know what to do. 
I'm failing. But more importantly, my patient is dying. Call a code, I say. The nurses look puzzled, but he's not coding. His heart hasn't stopped. He's about to. Call it. I need more help. I need more people here. Dr. Cart, ICU. Dr. Cart, ICU echoes overhead, alerting all those on call scattered throughout the hospital that there is a code or an arrest. They're to stop what they're doing to come to assist when that hospital-wide alarm is sent out. But when they enter the ICU, breathless from their sprint, they do not find a patient without a pulse, but instead a senior resident who is failing in his responsibility to help his patient. I feel shame, inadequate, an imposter. Worst of all, I am a danger to my patient. There is now a larger group of residents, some more senior, others the same level of training as me. I quickly explain the situation, and after a few questions, two of them look at each other with recognition of the pattern that has eluded me. Acute right heart failure prompted by positive pressure from the ventilator. The right ventricle is struggling to pump blood to the lungs. Usually our focus is on the left ventricle pumping blood to the body. Difficult to treat when recognized, impossible if not appreciated. One resident deftly places that IV in his neck. The other goes to work on the ventilator, modifying the settings, and 30 minutes later, my patient is stable, at least for the next few hours, through no help of my own. The three of us debrief a bit and talk about a game plan moving forward before I call and update the attending at home. They go back to their patients, leaving me alone with my team and my thoughts. The patients in the ICU make it through the rest of the night unscathed, unlike my psyche. I am humbled by what I need to learn and shaken by how my deficiencies almost led to a death. My patient's life now on a more stable course, I find my own career path in jeopardy. With a bit more time separating me from the event, I start to process the evening. My colleagues who came to my rescue did not judge me. They came to help a co-resident and patient in need. The shame or judgment I felt was my own and my own to bear. Today, I appreciate even more the culture and learning environment at the University of Chicago, where cooperation trumps ego and pride in an environment that encourages resident autonomy. Asking for help is not a sign of weakness. What could have led to an abandonment of a life goal instead became a building block for future learning. It has been 17 years since my first night as a senior resident in the ICU. 12 of those have been as an adult pulmonary and critical care doctor working with a group of physicians that practice with the same philosophy. That recognizing one's limits is an important part of being a doctor. There is no sin in having deficits, but there is in failing to acknowledge and learn from them. I learned more that night than the pattern of acute right heart failure. I took a big step to being a lifelong learner. And what a great piece. And thank you, Dr. Topin.
And my goodness, he was, he was recalling that incident as if it happened yesterday. And it's something we've all experienced in some way, shape, or form. It's how we learn, folks. And asking for help is not a weakness. Dr. Jeremy Topin's story, here on Our American Stories. our American stories. You're listening to tenor saxophonist Dexter Gordon, and this is our story of a song segment. And on this day in history in 1979, Georgia on my mind became the state song of the Peach State. And as always, our this day in histories are brought to us by the great folks at Hillsdale College, where you can go to study all the things that matter in life, all the things that are beautiful in life, from history to the arts. And from philosophy to economics, it's all there. And if you can't get to Hillsdale, Hillsdale will come to you with their free and terrific online courses. Go to hillsdale.edu. That's hillsdale.edu. Some say the song was written about a girl. Others say it was about a place, a state, the Peachtree State. The two men who know for sure can't answer that question because they're no longer alive. George On My Mind was written by Hoagie Carmichael and Stuart Gorell. Carmichael, one of Tin Pan Alley's most prolific writers, was born in Bloomington, Indiana in 1899. The son of a horse-drawn taxi driver and a mom who played piano for a living, his family had a hard time making ends meet. The death of his baby sister Joanna in 1918 to influenza had a profound effect on Carmichael's life. Quote, We couldn't afford a good doctor or good attention, and that's when I vowed I would never be broke again in my lifetime. He never would be. Carmichael graduated from Indiana University and the law school there and joined an Indianapolis law firm. But his real talent and where he'd make a great living, was coming up with melodies, some of the most memorable melodies in popular music history. American composer and author Alec Wilder described Carmichael as, quote, the most talented, inventive, sophisticated, and jazz-oriented of all the great craftsmen of pop songs in the first half century of the 20th century. Few people ever write one standard, but Carmichael wrote a bunch. Stardust, The Nearness of You, Skylark, in the cool, cool, cool of the evening, and of course, his most well-known composition, Georgia on My Mind. The lyricist was born in Knox, Indiana, and went to school with Carmichael, and the two became friends. After hearing his pal play the fresh new melody at a party, Gorell pulled an all-nighter and ended up with the lyrics for the song. Gorell would become a banker. He never wrote another lyric 
in his life. Neither man ever lived in the state of Georgia. Carmichael did have a sister named Georgia. You can decide if the song was about a person or a place. Here is Carmichael's version of that song, recorded on September 15, 1930, with Carmichael on vocals and Eddie Lang on guitar. Georgia, Georgia, the whole day through, just an old sweet song. Keeps Georgia on my mind Georgia on my mind Each day, Georgia A song of you Comes as sweet and clear as moonlight through the pines Other arms reach out to me Other eyes smile tenderly Still in peaceful dreams Others recorded the song. In 1931, saxophonist Frank Trambauer had a top ten hit with it in 1931. Indeed, he was the guy who suggested the song to Carmichael. Other versions followed, among them Louis Armstrong and Ronnie Hawkins and the Hawks, but hits proved elusive. Quote, After rock and roll, I never even got a phone call from an A&R man about anything, Hoagie Carmichael told a writer at Downbeat magazine. That song and Carmichael's entire catalog was a victim to changing tastes and changing musical styles. It would take Ray Charles to bring the song back to life. The rising star had just left Atlantic Records. He wanted more independence, more artistic control of his music, and higher royalties. More than that, he wanted his music to reach more people and more mainstream acceptance of his music at a time when albums was starting to outsell singles. The Genius Hits the Road was his first new record for his new record label, ABC Paramount. It was a 12-track theme album based on places in the United States, and Georgia on My Mind was tucked between Basin Street Blues, and that's the main street of Storyville in the Red Light District of New Orleans, and Alabama Bound. The song's lush orchestration, including strings, was unlike anything Charles had ever done before. Some thought it was a mistake, this musical departure. Others thought Charles was selling out. The public disagreed. The song reached number one in November of 1960 and won his first four Grammys that year. He'd go on to win 17 and was nominated 37 times. He would go on to break musical barriers with his 1962 album, Modern Sounds of Country and Western. Other hits of Charles include I Can't Stop Loving You, Hit the Road Jack, and his duet with Willie Nelson, Seven Spanish Angels, which would rise to number one on the country charts in 1985. But it is Georgia on My Mind that was his most memorable song. In 2003, Rolling Stone named the song the 44th greatest of all time. Was that song about an old love or a man longing for home? We'll never know. But Ray Charles had his own opinion 
According to his 1978 autobiography, Brother Ray, neither a woman nor a state was on his mind when he recorded the song. Quote, I never known a lady named Georgia, and I wasn't dreaming of the state even though I was born there, Charles recalled. It was just a beautiful, romantic melody. That wouldn't stop the Georgia State Legislature from making Georgia on my mind the official state song. Governor George Busby signed it into law in 1979. It's a quintessentially American story, the story of Georgia on my mind. Two white Midwesterners write a song that a brilliant blind black man they never knew or met would bring to life many years later. It would change the lives of the writers and the singer forever and make the world a more beautiful place. There would be other covers of the song, Billie Holiday, Dean Martin, Eddie Arnold, Michael Bolton, Michael Buble, Ella Fitzgerald, Leon Russell, Jerry Garcia, Coldplay, The Righteous Brothers, James Brown, the Zac Brown Band, but one version stands out above the rest. At the time of his death, at the age of 73, on June 10th, 2004, Ray Charles averaged 200 concerts a year. Georgia On My Mind was always the crowd favorite. Georgia Georgia The whole day through Just an old sweet song Keeps Georgia on my mind And a Georgia Georgia A song of you Comes as sweet and clear As moonlight through the pines Other arms reach out to me Other eyes smile tenderly Still in the peaceful dreams I see The road leads back to you I said, Georgia Georgia No peace I find Just an old sweet song Keeps Georgia on my mind And that's the power of music, folks. It transcends time, place, and even race. The story of a song, Georgia on my mind. On this day in history, in 1979, it became the state song of Georgia. Still in peaceful dreams I see The road leads back to you Whoa Georgia, 
This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. And you've been listening to Barbara Streisand, her terrific performance in the movie and, of course, the play, Funny Girl. She originated the play on Broadway and then knocked it out of the park in her screen performance. And Barbara Streisand was born on this day in history in 1942. And as always, our This Day in Histories are brought to us by the great folks at Hillsdale College. And if you can't get to Hillsdale, Hillsdale can come to you with their free and terrific online courses. Streisand is one of the great talents in American entertainment history. She could sing. She could act. There was nothing she couldn't do. And my goodness, people have opinions about Streisand, in part, I think, because, well, she has political opinions of her own. But one thing cannot be debated. Ten Grammys, two Oscars, a Tony, and a Presidential Medal of Freedom Award. It's about as good and as honored as any artist in American history. And joining us to talk about her is the man who wrote about her, Neil Gabler, who wrote Barbara Streisand, Redefining Beauty, Femininity, and Power. Welcome to the show, Neil. My pleasure. And, you know, when we were talking about Bob Dylan the other day, we played a clip. And someone had asked Dylan if he was surprised at his success. And he was like, no, I had always thought I was going to be doing what I'm doing. <laughs> I mean, and not quizzically, Neil. I mean, and not cockily. It wasn't, he wasn't cocky about it. It was just, I think he thought he was predestined for greatness. And I, I, I can only assume from what I've read already that that's what you learned about Barbara Streisand. Absolutely true. Uh, I don't think you can really succeed the way that Barbara Streisand succeeded, if you didn't believe in yourself. And she believed in herself against the odds. She was a little girl who had aspired to show business from, you know, the, the, the earliest age, and whose own mother told her, forget that dream. You're never going to make it. You're not pretty enough. You're just not going to succeed. Here was a girl who, as she went on to high school, wouldn't even get the solo in her high school's choir. (laughs) It went to someone else who was a a more operatic kind of singer. Here was a girl who, when she first tried to enter show business, was told repeatedly the same thing that her mother had told her by producers and agents. You're you're just not attractive enough. You're going to have to find another profession. You're never going to succeed at this profession. Girls who look like you don't wind up being stars. Yep. So somehow against all of the odds, there was some sense of fortitude within Barbara Streisand that kept her going. 
You know, we're going to start off by playing a scene from the movie Funny Girl where Barbara is looking into the mirror at herself. She's wearing a chic leopard coat and hat with an expression made of equal parts admiration, disappointment, irony, and defiance. And by the way, she was capable as an actress of doing all of those things. And she greets herself. Let's take a listen. Hello, gorgeous. <laughs> Neil, talk about this scene and why you open your book with it. Well, this is a scene that introduces Barbara Streisand to the world. Now, she played this role, obviously, on Broadway and became a star, but this is the opening of the movie, and it is where Barbara Streisand addresses herself. And in some ways, it, it, it kind of um, expresses the themes of Barbara Streisand's career, uh, of her life, and of her work. Um, if she looks in that mirror... And when she says, hello, gorgeous, I mean, there is a sense of irony. Here's a woman who's been told repeatedly and is told in the movie as well, in the role of Fanny Bryce, Mm -hmm. that she's not gorgeous. She's not good looking enough. The same thing, again, that Streisand had been told throughout her life. Um, And yet at that point, when she's looking in that mirror, she is a star already. This is how the film begins, and then we move into flashback. Uh, That irony has sort of been subverted. Because she is gorgeous. She has succeeded. She has become a star. And, and so there's, there is, uh, you'll have to excuse my dog in the background. Oh, no, we love dogs in the background. It's a running theme on the show. We never get rid of them because we love dogs. Well, Go on, Neil. of them, so we may hear both of them. Fantastic. <laughs> um, so, you know, you, you get that, that, um, th- that image of Streisand from the very outset of her film career um, as a woman who's overcoming the, the odds. You know, Neil, as your, as your book title articulates, this woman changed how we think about thinking about the conventions of beauty, femininity, and power. Explain how you came up with this thesis for your book. Well, actually, it was, it, it was not only the, the thesis, but it was the reason I wanted to write the book. Uh, I'm an admirer of Barbara Streisand. It's hard not to be. I mean, she is such an enormous talent. And I, I think whether you love her or not, uh, you have to admire her. Yep. Um, but that's not why I wrote the book. Um, the, the real impulse for writing the book was the way that she influenced culture. There are many great entertainers, many people we, we love to listen to, watch, uh, laugh at, whatever. But Barbara Streisand was more than that. She was one of those handful of entertainers who actually changed the culture. And the subtitle of the book, I, I hope, expresses the ways in which I think, the paramount ways in which I think that she changed the culture. She redefined our understanding of beauty. Before Barbara Streisand, in entertainment, there were beauty conventions. And almost every woman had to abide by those conventions. You bet. They were all conventionally beautiful women. Barbara Streisand, I think, is a beautiful woman, but she's not conventionally beautiful in in any sense that her predecessors were. Uh, Barbara Streisand was not a Doris Day. Uh, She looked ethnic. She acted ethnic. Yep. Um, And she also behaved in ways, and this, I think, bleeds over into the femininity issue when I talk about redefining beauty, femininity, and power, 
She behaved in ways that were not conventionally feminine. Neil, hold that thought, and we're going to pick up on the femininity. We're talking to Neil Gabler. We're talking about Barbara Streisand and his marvelous new book, Barbara Streisand, Redefining Beauty, Femininity, and Power. More after these messages with Neil. Stories, and we're continuing with Neil Gabler, author of Barbara Streisand, Redefining Beauty, Femininity, and Power. We just did Bob Dylan, and Bob Dylan is one of those people, I believe, Neil, that changed the culture, too. And, uh, and you're right, so many people are, are great entertainers, uh, but so few of them actually influence the way we think and what we do. And uh, thanks again for joining us. We pick up on that femininity point, Neil, and elaborate on that if you could. Yes, yeah, so, you know, the subtitle of the book is Redefining Beauty, Femininity, and Power. And you, Barbara Streisand, I, I think, clearly changed the conventions of beauty in the movies. There had never been an actress who looked like her before who was not a comic actress. I mean, there have been comedians who, you know, looked sort of odd, but Barbara Streisand was not a comedian at least not primarily comedian. I mean, she was a romantic lead. Yep. So she changed that. But she also didn't behave the way women generally behaved in movies. Uh, aside from you know that relatively brief period in the 30s and 40s when you had Betty Davis and Jean Arthur and Joan Crawford um, and Irene Dunn and a number of stars who were tough and who were certainly the equals of their male co-stars, you know, Barbara Streisand came into the movies at a time when women were basically submissive. Yep. And yet submissive is not a word that you would ever apply to Barbara Streisand. And, and one of the reasons that women always were submissive on screen is that that was considered feminine. I mean, women had to be submissive to the male lead. She was not. And in a way, she challenged our concept of femininity. And the fact that she came along at a time in the 1960s when feminism was at its inception, uh, I think sort of Streisand worked off of feminism and feminism worked off of Streisand. And she brought that, mainstreamed that, into the movies as no other star had done. So she changed really our concept of femininity and allowed us to accept a woman who was tough, who was often regarded as mannish. Um, but her idea was that women could be tough without losing their femininity. You bet. And that then, I think, you know, kind of leads into the notion of power. Because Barbara Streisand, both on screen and off screen, exuded a kind of power that no actress had ever exuded or exercised in, in the entertainment world, which is why she could become a producer yep. and a director. 
And and that she wasn't in that respect a trailblazer. You can't say that about Betty Davis or any of those those tough women of the '40s who I think dominated the screen. And you're right about the nature of most female leads. It was the Barbara Stanwyck's. It was the pinups almost. The Lauren Bacall's, just spectacular and beautiful, and could have just modeled if they'd wanted to. Neil, no, no, I would. You're absolutely right. And and where Barbara Streisand led, many women were able to follow. I mean, there's no Beck Midler without Barbara Streisand. That's right. I don't think there's a Lady Gaga. I think you're dead Barbara right. Yep. I'm not sure there's an Adele mm-hmm. without Barbara Streisand. Or a Madonna. Or a Madonna. You know, Barbara Streisand just changed the whole architecture of women in entertainment. Yeah, I've just been reading about Charlie Chaplin's life, and he was an actor who wasn't just an actor. And on the business side, uh, he, you know, he was trying to empower artists, male particularly at the time, to take control of their own lives, you know, countering a studio system by building one himself. And in well, large Barbara measure, that's just what Barbara was doing. She did. You know, you have United Artists, uh, you know, with Mary Pickford and, and Douglas Fairbanks and Charlie Chaplin and D.W. Griffith, yep. which was a way of taking over the industry and controlling their own work. Barbara Streisand and Paul Newman and Steve McQueen and Dustin Hoffman formed First Artists, which was a, a later day incarnation of that. But even though First Artists was not a success and, and it didn't last, Streisand still, within the confines of Hollywood, was able to exercise the power that I referenced earlier. Um, I mean, a, a woman director? Yeah. A woman director? I mean, that was ridiculous. unheard of. Ridiculous. And, Neil, and, and even when she did it, there were a number of, of men in Hollywood who were very resistant to the idea yep. and called her all sorts of names. So Barbara Streisand had to withstand not only the abuse of, of being regarded as ugly when she was young and still you know, persevering, but also the idea of being, well, she acts like a man and she's a diva and, and all sorts of, of um, you know, opprobrium that, were, that was hurled at her. But she withstood that as well and was able to succeed as a power in the industry. And as you said, blazed a trail not only aesthetically for women, but also in terms of power for women. You know, it's interesting, Neil. Uh, in the past six months, I've, I've covered two really interesting people from Brooklyn that lots of people love and lots of people hate and they have opinions. But both of them have thick skins and they're both American originals. It's interesting that Justice Scalia came from Brooklyn and people have a lot of opinions about him. But here he was <laughs> forging friendships with Justice Ginsburg. And no matter how much you wanted to not like him, you had to respect his talent and his intellect. And let's talk about Barbara's childhood and this Brooklyn thing, because it is a thing. And it, obviously, she didn't have the family, but she had a lot of Brooklyn in her, Neil. Oh, she, was, she is Brooklyn personified. And there is something, you are rightly, there's something about Brooklyn that kind of pervades the people who were born there. It's the toughest borough of New York. Yep. Uh, it's not just a, a place. It's a way of being. We all know it's a way of talking as well. You bet. But it's a way of being. <laughs> uh, and it's, it's, a, it's a way of, it's a toughness as opposed to Manhattan, which is the, the elite borough of New York and which scorned Brooklyn for an awfully long time and maybe to this day still does. Yeah. But those people who were, grew up in Brooklyn grew up with thick skins, um, grew up with a sense of, of perseverance, uh, 
and I mean, it was also the the ethnic enclave of New York. Uh, I mean, cheek to jowl, you had Poles and and the Irish and Italians and Jews, um, and and they all somehow learned to coexist there, and that also I think toughened them up when they were facing mainstream middle America, uh, and and you know were forging their way into that America, you bet. which had resisted this these people previously. Oh, well, you know, we did a, we did a piece on Yogi Berra, uh, and, you know, he grew up in what was called Dago Hill in St. Louis. I mean, that's what it was called, Dago yeah. Hill. And people mm-hmm. forget that Italians faced all kinds of discrimination. My goodness, Jews, uh, you know, you could write a book about Harvard and City College and, and, yeah. and not stop. But it never stopped Jews or Italians from being proud for running away from themselves and being comfortable, I think what's most important, Neil, just comfortable in their own skin and being able to withstand things. And by the way, there are no safe zones in Brooklyn. These people learned how to deal with insults, with tough times, and helicopter parents weren't protecting them. My goodness, Streisand's childhood. What I want to do here, Neil, is play a clip for you and get and get your reaction to this one. Then I'm going to play another one and get your reaction as well. Uh, let's play this first one. I had a stepfather when I was seven years old. But she says he almost never talked to her. And when he did, it was awful. She still remembers he once told her she couldn't have ice cream because she was too ugly. What made him such a creep? I mean, he didn't talk to you. The man never talked to me. Why? Why? You know, at at the time that I was a child, I mean, I just thought, I just thought that I was awful. You got about a minute right here before we go to a break, but talk about this stepfather and Barbara Streisand's really remarkable ability to deal with this. The most inappropriately named man imaginable. His name was Louis Kind, and he was anything but. <laughs> uh, and he did treat Barbara miserably, and I think in a way probably toughened her. But what made it even worse was that he had a child with Barbara's mother. Uh, Roslyn, whom he absolutely doted upon, and he and he called the two daughters Beauty, that is his own daughter Roslyn, and the Beast, his stepdaughter uh, Barbara, and and so you know this is the this is the environment in which Barbara Streisand was forged, and if you wonder why she's so tough, that goes some way to explaining why. Well, you know what, Neil? When we come back, we're going to talk more about that. You know, one of my favorite books of the last year is about resilience and how we build it in companies and human beings. And my goodness, that kind of childhood builds resilience. This is Lee Habib. We're talking to Neil Gabler, author of Barbara Streisand, Redefining Beauty, Femininity, and Power. More after these messages. So was love. This eager heart of mine was singing. Where can you be? You came at last. Love had its day. No wonder I 
Father has a business Strictly second hand Everything from toothpicks To a baby grand Stuff in our apartment Came from father's store Even clothes I'm wearing Someone wore before It's no wonder that I feel abused I never get a thing that ain't been used I'm wearing second-hand hats Second-hand clothes That's why This is Our American Stories and you're listening to Truly one of the great vocal talents of all time. But that wasn't enough for Barbara Streisand to conquer film and to conquer so much more. And live performance art. Oh my goodness, there aren't many greater live performers than Barbara Streisand. Broadway wasn't big enough for her. And one of the great Broadway talents that didn't spend much time on Broadway. We're talking to Neil Gabler, author of Barbara Streisand, Redefining Beauty, Femininity, and Power. We just played a clip of Barbara Streisand in a remarkable interview she did with Mike Wallace on 60 Minutes talking about her stepfather. Here, she's talking about her mother. My mother never said to me, you're smart, you're pretty, you're anything. You could do what you want. She, she never told me anything like that. My mother would, I would say to my mother now, why didn't you ever give me any compliments? She said, I didn't want you to get a swelled head. Barbara says her mother told her she was odd, skinny, and not pretty enough to be a movie star, that she should be a typist. Wow. And, and t- tell me this, Neil. She, she, the family didn't have money, did they? No, they did not. No, they were very poor. You know, Barbara's father died when she was 15 months old. Uh, suddenly he died. And, and so she never knew her father. And her mother remarried uh, to Louis Kind. Uh, but Louis Kind was not what one would call a, a hard and diligent worker. Um, so the, the, fa- the, the family lived in poverty. For a while, they lived with uh, Barbara's grandparents. Uh, so there was never money in, in the house. I, I, I want to add one thing. When, when uh, her mother said that she would never be a star, uh, she told her that what she ought to be is a secretary because that's a, that's a profession that's secure. And Barbara Streisand always said that she wore her nails so long just so she couldn't type. <laughs> that's great. <laughs> that, that would preclude her from ever hitting that, hitting that road. You know, it, it's interesting. We were, we're, we're going to be playing a Denzel Washington commencement speech, and he was, you know, he's a Bronx boy and uh, grew up near Fordham University in the Bronx. And he was talking to a young graduating class about the pursuit of the arts and do not have something to fall back on, uh, that you got to fall forward and you got to believe in yourself and you got to just keep going and moving forward. And my goodness, I don't think Barbara Streisand had a backup plan. Uh, let's- oh, there was no plan B. There was never a plan B. The second she got out of high school, and she graduated high school six months early so that she could work on plan A, she went to Manhattan and she started auditioning and trying to, to get roles. She even auditioned for the role of one of the blonde daughters in The Sound of Music, even <laughs> though no one could be more quintessentially Jewish than right. Barbara Streisand. But that's how, that's how eager she was, how determined she was, how indefatigable she was. Uh, you know, to succeed. And we know the Yiddish and, and, word chutzpah, that's, that's what it means right there, doesn't it, Neil? She is 
uh, you know, I said she was Brooklyn personified. She's also chutzpah personified. No but doubt. here's the thing about her. When we were talking about her, her Brooklyn-ness and her Jewishness, one of the things that Barbara Streisand was able to do, and I think one of the bases for her stardom, was that she took her Jewishness and she converted it into a larger sense of otherness. You know, when you look at movie stars, and she always wanted to be a movie star, she never wanted to be a singing star, but when yep. you look at movie stars from the period before Streisand, these are people we all aspired to be. We never felt that they were outsiders. We didn't identify with them. We hoped to be them. Barbara Streisand changed that transaction. She was an outsider. She looked like us. She acted like us. She'd suffered many of the same indignities that we suffered. And so when Barbara Streisand came on the scene, the source of her popularity, in my estimation, was that we could identify with her, and she was our vicarious vessel for success. Yeah, I always thought she you... made her otherness our otherness. You bet. And that made her almost the underdog that we all rooted for. And also, well, we're all underdogs, most of us. And though she had this colossal voice, which I actually think when you have that much talent, Neil, it can put a distance between you and the audience. But when you're acting and you're acting the way she did, I always felt like the, the ordinary woman was looking at Barbara Streisand and saying, go get him. Go get him. The ordinary woman was looking at Barbara Streisand and also saying, I know that she knows what I've been going through. That's true. She had had to go through the same thing. And it's interesting to me that when you look at her movies, her movies are about that. Yep. You know, she generally plays a woman who's been put upon, a woman who has to fight to succeed, uh, a woman who doesn't always get the guy at the end of the movie. That's right. Most of her movies are romances, but if you look at her movies, at the end of the film, whether it's, it's Funny Girl or it's The Way We Were or it's Yentl, she doesn't usually get the guy right and this is by the way is the opposite of woody allen who always gets the beautiful woman always yeah, that's right that's right <laughs> <laughs> well he's another sort of vicariousness <laughs> well that is that is a male vicariousness and that's we, we are dreamers in the end and women well they live on the planet earth <laughs> and again another brooklyn boy woody allen uh, alan Koningsberg. uh by the way sort of he never hid his jewishness in his act neil but my goodness, in his name, he certainly did. Yes. And, you know, Streisand, never, another interesting thing about her is she traded on her Jewishness. You bet. You know, most Jewish stars, most ethnic stars, let's not even, you know, uh, limit this to, to Jewish. You bet Italians. Most ethnic stars tried to hide their ethnicity because it didn't sell in Hollywood. Yep. Um, Streisand was one of those people who succeeded not in spite of her Jewishness, but because of her Jewishness. I think that's a powerful thing, and one of the, I think one of the most powerful takeaways from the book, Neil, is that she didn't run from herself, and she didn't hide. And in an era where I think Hollywood was receptive to this, I wonder how this would have worked, Neil, if Barbara were born 15 years earlier. Oh, I think it would have been different. Yep. Although it's hard to say that because she is so unique an individual that maybe, maybe just maybe, she did have enough fortitude to have even fought through that 15 years earlier. But you just think about one thing, Lee. Just think about the nose job. Everyone told her, you have to get a nose job. 
I mean, she was told this repeatedly. There were reviews of her oh, yeah. saying that, you, you know, if she gets her nose fixed, maybe she'll have a chance of succeeding. The pressure on her to get that nose fixed was pretty heavy, and she always resisted it for the very reason that you pointed out, because she said, I wouldn't be me. Yep. And by the way, one of the movie critics I I was most I thought most loathsome was John Simon, and the way he treated Barbara Streisand's looks in his movie reviews, I thought, my goodness, it's just disgraceful. And what a writer he is, by the way, and what a talent. But what a despicable man! And I, I she had to withstand that her entire life, actually, Neil. And and I think right to the end, there were these these people who were just mean, just like that stepdad. We're we're talking to. One of, the, one of the authors of one of our favorite books of the year, and it's Neil Gabler, and the book is Barbara Streisand, Redefining Beauty, Femininity, and Power. And when we come back, we're going to talk about this meteoric rise to fame, that first movie, that first movie that gets a very young Barbara Streisand, an Oscar, an Oscar, crazy, crazy talent, but more importantly, just crazy, great fortitude, and character. More about this remarkable life story. This is Lee Habib. This is Our American Stories, The Life of Barbara Streisand. North and south and east and west of your life I have only one request of your life That you spend it all with me used to be so natural to talk about forever but used to bees don't count anymore they just lay on the floor till we sweep them away baby I remember all the things you taught me I learned how to laugh and I learned how to cry This is Our American Stories, and we're talking to Neil Gabler, author of Barbara Streisand, Redefining Beauty, Femininity, and Power. And what are the odds of this, Neil? Neil Diamond and Barbara Streisand were classmates at Erasmus High School in Brooklyn. That's crazy. It sure is. (laughs) You can't make that up. Hey, let's talk about her rise to fame, and it's funny, girl, and nobody's ever seen anything like it. Was anybody prepared for it, Neil? Did anyone know it was coming, except Barbara? Well, she knew it was coming once she had landed the role. Um, and there were other people who anticipated it. You know, she, the thing about the, Barbara Streisand, she was so young. You know, she was 21 years old when she starred in Funny Girl. Now that is, is kind of mind-boggling to think that this woman captivates all of Broadway at that age. But she sort of knew it was going to happen. Um, I don't think she had butterflies. I don't think she, she had you know, a great deal of self-doubt. And the thing was that once she landed the role, and once the producers of the, of the play and the directors of the play saw her, they knew she was going to make it too. And opening night 
was historic. It's a, it's a historic night in the history of show business because that night Barbara Streisand walked onto that stage and into the annals of show business history. She was the cover of Time magazine the next week. That's how immediate the impact was. And then, of course, she makes her very first movie, which was the film version of Funny Girl, and she wins the Oscar. Yeah, there's no, I don't think there's another career that has a parallel to that trajectory and that path, Neil, is there? Not that, not that rapidly. And it's not just, you know, from Broadway to Hollywood. But then at the same time, she's recording albums that win her two consecutive Grammys for Album of the Year. Uh, she's the female vocalist of the year. So she's, at, at this very young age, you know, she's 21, 22, 23, she is triumphing in, in all of these different areas, um, in, in nightclubs as well. I mean, you know, that's another area in which she is triumphant. Uh, there's a wonderful story when she is at the uh, Copacabana, and uh, she comes out, the uh, Coconut Grove, excuse me, the Coconut Grove in Los Angeles, and she comes out, and you know, every star in Hollywood is there, for the first nightclub appearance of Barbara Streisand. And she looks around and she says, you know, if I'd known there were going to be this many people, I would have had my nose fixed. <laughs> By the way, Neil, she had a wicked and great sense of humor on the screen, too, though she loved to play the, 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 you know, the lead uh, character in romantic parts. My goodness, could she be funny, too? Well, that was one of the things that she was able to, to straddle, is she could be the romantic lead, but she could also play the comedian. And, and there aren't many actresses who, particularly today, you know, who, can, who can straddle those two ex- self-deprecating. You know, she, could, she was always able to make fun of herself. Yep. You know, she's often regarded as being a diva, but... There is, a, there is a, a, a way in which you know, Barbara Streisand was able to undermine herself, and that was another bond, I think, between herself and her audience. That's a real talent to have that kind of self-awareness, too, Neil. I mean, in the end, that may be one of the greatest talents of all as an actor, an actress, and a performer, is to know how you're perceived and to, well, get ahead of it and control the audience and get them to think what you want them to think about you. And to connect with them. Yep. You know, Barbara Streisand connected with audiences in a way that very few performers have, which I think explains the, the nearly 60-year career that she's had. She connected with audiences. They felt that, as I said earlier, she was performing their lives, not just performing for them, but performing them. The songs she sings, even You Don't Send Me Flowers, or People or Cry Me a River, um, you know, those are songs that express a longing and a loneliness that her fans could connect to. And the characters she plays on screen are characters that her fans can connect to as individuals who are outsiders, who are marginalized. Yep. Streisand understood herself and her connection to that audience. You know, it's interesting, Neil. We did an hour on Frank Sinatra, and there was always this part in the set, and we hear him saying this himself, where he said, these are the songs about losers. And, mm-hmm. and he was always writing about losers. And that kid from Hoboken, which is the Brooklyn of New Jersey, frankly, and the whole state of New Jersey sort of has this same sort of chip on its shoulder and attitude to it. And it gives us Jack Nicholson, and it gives us Bruce Willis, and it gives us Frank Sinatra, and it gives us Bruce Springsteen. There's something about these surrounding spots around New York City 
that, that just produced this talent. I want to talk to you about Yentl. Um, because when I watched this movie, I thought, this has got to be the personal desire. Uh, this, this manifests itself as something that I thought was very deep uh, and deeply held to, to Barbara Streisand. How important was that movie to her? Very important. Now, I would say that all of her movies, almost all of her movies, let me, let me, uh, let me put in that little proviso, you know, almost all of her movies were very personal. She didn't make movies that were impersonal, but Yentl was a movie she fought to make. Right. Yentl was a movie she fought years and years to make. She couldn't get financing for it. Nobody wanted her to do it. Her own boyfriend at the time, John Peters, told her she shouldn't do it, which was one of the reasons why they split. Um, but she persisted, as she had persisted earlier, against all odds, and wound up obviously being able to make the film, star in the film, direct the film, and make the film financially successful as well. And yes, I think there's something very personal about that. Why did she want to make it so badly? Yeah. I think that the, the idea of a woman who is scorned, a woman who is treated as an outsider, a woman who is told she will never succeed, that is her story. And then a woman who, by dressing as a man, you know, triumphs over the men, that's also part of her story. Mm-hmm. So there are some people who would say that she acted like a man. She didn't literally dress like a man, right. but she always acted like a man in Hollywood. So that's part of her story. And I think the, the whole notion that in doing so, you don't really win the man. That was something that happened to Barbara Streisand until, you know, relatively recently in her life, until 1998 when she met James Brolin uh, and got married. Uh, you know, she was someone who was almost too much of a woman for many of the men with whom she had um, had relationships. Yep. You know, she was just too tough. Yep. Too tough, um, too strong, and probably in the end a lot of the men didn't feel like men um, because of her yes. strength, Neil. I, I think that's true. Um, and she understood that as well. And I think the, the, the proof of her understanding of that is Yentl. Yep. So true. And, you know, it's interesting, you know, as I remember the movie, she, she sings only in that movie. And when she's singing, it's the equivalent of a soliloquy in Shakespeare. You're getting the inner thoughts. And was that her idea? Because it was really a brilliant... A lot of people criticized her for not letting Mandy Patinkin sing, this great Broadway singer. But that wasn't her trying to not let him sing. It was a dramatic device, and it was a brilliant dramatic device. In fact, she didn't want this to be a musical. And the only way that she could get the financing for the film was to make it a musical because then they knew they could sell the album. Wow. But what they wanted was a Barbra Streisand album. (laughs) They didn't just want a cast album. Right. They wanted an album of hers. So how did she finesse this? She finessed it by doing precisely as you say, turning every song into a personal soliloquy. Well, in effect, what it does is it allows her to emote in the movie in a very powerful way to the audience and, and allow her to, allows her to achieve some very subtle effects. I mean, one of my favorite songs in the film is No Wonder He Loves Her, which is where she's observing why Mandy Potemkin is in love with Amy Irving, because yep. Amy Irving is a conventional woman exactly. and and then she sings that song again later in the film, a reprise of that song. Uh, no wonder he loves her. But she's really talking about herself and saying why she loves the way that Amy Irving behaves, because it's a, it's a kind of a femininity that she can't achieve herself. And, and the, the, the 
first rendition of that song and its reprise is a very powerful statement in the film and a very subtle effect in that movie. Indeed. And that what a vulnerability uh, that she is able to express on film too, Neil. And I think that may be her greatest characteristic. And I think that's what makes so many of the great artists great. They're willing to expose their own personal wounds to the world. Neil Gabler, Barbara Streisand, Redefining Beauty, Femininity and Power. Thanks for writing this great book. Oh, thank you so much. And what a life, what a story. And thank you, Neil Gabler, and his terrific book, Barbara Streisand, Redefining Beauty, Femininity and Power. Go to Amazon and pick it up. You will not put it down. And what an American story, folks. What an American original Whatever you think of Barbara Streisand's politics, and people do, in this great country, we put these things aside and share in the greatness and the real talent, the God-given talent that this woman did. She revolutionized show business, folks, and took it to a level well no one had ever thought this girl from Brooklyn could. Barbara Streisand's story, a classic, a quintessential American story. She was born on this day in history in 1942. And again, as always, our This Day in Histories are brought to us by the great folks at Hillsdale College, where you can go to learn all the things that matter in life. And if you can't get to Hillsdale, Hillsdale will come to you with their free and terrific online courses. Barbara Streisand's life story here on Our American Stories. Sky was blue and high above. The moon was new, so was love. This eager heart of mine will see. 